Welcome to Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, April 12th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. We're not thinking small for this edition of our show. Ahead, Dr. Amber Strawn, an alum of the University of Arkansas and an astrophysicist with NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, talks about searching the farthest reaches of the universe. And Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports on the latest chapter in the big task of vaccinating against COVID-19. She asked Dr. Joe Thompson, the president and CEO of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement, about that second booster shot that's been approved. That's ahead. Tonight, Venus Williams, one of the most accomplished athletes and entrepreneurs in the world, will be on a big stage in Fayetteville. She's a guest of the University of Arkansas's Distinguished Speaker Series, and she'll be in conversation in Bud Walton Arena, that conversation moderated by Danielle Musselman. Danielle is not unfamiliar with interviews. She's worked for ESPN, Fox Sports, and the NFL Network. A few years ago, she moved to Fayetteville with her family. Yesterday, she came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to answer a few questions about prepping for tonight's big discussion. She says she has a pretty simple plan for getting ready. I personally start to think about the audience first, and um, I think about what they would want to hear, and I, I think that the audience is the majority is going to be college students. And so, um, of course, we're going to talk about the tennis because it's just, you know, that's who she is. And it's so exciting. But what I found in talking to young people today, the students, they really want to hear about social issues. And she's really involved and is one of the main reasons that men and women in tennis now have equal pay. And so I definitely want to make sure that I hit on that and give her a lot of time to talk about it. And I knew that she was involved at some level, but in my research, I really did not know that she was truly the driving force behind that. And she kind of picked up where some other people had left off and carried that across the finish line. So um, in addition, I like to do like rapid fire because like just a quick questions, just so we know who she is, aside from just tennis. And I think that is what makes people interesting. I mean, we all know she's a great tennis player, but, you know, what's your favorite food? Are you a morning person or do you like to stay up late? I think that kind of stuff just um, makes people interesting. Yeah, I'm, it's interesting because the audience wants to hear things from her. And at the same time, you want to ask her things that she hasn't been asked only a million times before. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Do you still get, I mean, you've done live television, global stuff. Do you think you'll still have a bit of adrenaline? Oh, 100%. I wish I could say no. (laughs) But no, I still have it. I mean, even a little bit, any time that I am speaking in public, I still get a little bit of that. You know, I don't know if it's excitement or nerves or a little bit of combination of the two. But I mean, Venus Williams is huge. She goes down. on the list of most impressive people that I've ever interviewed. Um, And that's me after working for, you know, 15 years in sports broadcasting. So that's pretty big. Yeah. And and the venue is quite exciting. I mean, this isn't a television studio. It's not a radio studio. This is in front of thousands of people. Yeah. And it's a first. I mean, I've never done something like this before. And um, I didn't necessarily put it out a ton. You know, I reposted stuff on social media, but the amount of people that have reached out to me over the past week and said, I'm going to be there, it has been overwhelming. So I know it's going to be a bunch of college students, but it's going to be a lot of people that I also personally know stuck in there. And that always adds like an extra layer of nerves. Like, I want to impress these people that are my friends. I want them to think that I'm doing a good job. You're a curious person, I'm guessing, to go into... The, the, the career and the life you've had? 
absolutely. Yeah. What What do you think led you to to ask questions and be curious? Um, I just think I, I have. And I think I didn't know this until I matured and got older, but um, I grew up moving around a lot, okay? So with my dad's career, I lived in, I mean, maybe seven states as a kid. And then in my own career, I moved a bunch, and then I married a basketball coach. And so it wasn't until I got older that I realized that all of these moves that I hated when I was a kid um, made me the person that I am today. And a large part of that is me having the opportunity to experience so many different people um, of different races, different sexualities, different cultures, just all of these things um, have made me, I feel like they make me smarter. And, you know, in, in the sense that just I am aware of so many different things that other people may not have had those experiences. So I think that the being curious is something that I really didn't even realize. And now as an adult, I reflect back on it. And um, I just see how much that sh- has shaped me as a person. You had children. You're on a college campus around young people. Do you feel like you can encourage young people to be curious and to to meet folks that are not like them, have experiences? Oh, that, it's one of the main things that I talk to people about whenever I talk about leadership, um, because I think that people want to put leadership into one box. But the, the being curious and knowing about other people that are different than yourselves is something that I think doesn't necessarily quickly resonate with other people. But if you sit there and you think about who you interact with on a daily basis, it's not something that people force themselves to do. You have to make a conscious decision. And that's that's what the hard part is, is making a conscious decision to reach out and join different groups and, you know, just get to know different things about different people. And I think that it broadens your view on the world. And some things that you feel so strongly about, once you learn people that have those life experiences, it it just, it makes you smarter. I mean, that's just my, my, my saying whenever I think about those things, but it just makes you understand. Um, and it's something like with my daughter that I, uh, make a pointed effort to put her in different situations and um, just keep her open-minded. We're speaking on Monday. What's it going to be like for you? When do you get up? Do you re- You've done research. Yeah. I mean, are you done with research? What? Yeah, I think I'm done with research. Venus Williams is a person that I, I feel like I kind of know a lot about because I've grown up. I mean, I've even I played tennis as a kid. Um, I saw King Richard. You know, it was something we sat down together as a family and saw that. Um, and then I just read articles and and just tried to read more about her. Um, her team sent over some questions, and I definitely pulled from that. And I just kind of put everything in a chronological order where I thought. You know, let's start from the beginning whenever she was a child phenom playing tennis, because, I mean, that's incredible, that story in itself. And um, so I think I'm I think I'm good with the research. And um, I just it's funny, I was taking it very seriously. And then I got a, a text message from my hairstylist and she said, where do you need me to be for hair and makeup? And I said, you know what? Yes, I'm going to get some hair. And, you know, I'm, I'm like, yeah, let's do this right. I'm going to get a new outfit. I'm going to get my hair and makeup done. Let's let's go all the way with this. So um, I'm just going to try to do my, my regular routine, go get my workout in, um, you know, reread over my notes, get all the glam stuff done because, you know, I am a girl at the end of the day and then uh, just head on in. Oh, we all yeah. want, if we're in front of people, <laughs> we all want to look as we all want to look the confidence. Yes, right. Absolutely. 
I've got to ask this because I've always admired television people who can have someone talking to them <laughs> in their ear while you're talking to us and you're looking great doing it and you're making sense. How difficult a skill is that to to master? Um, it's pretty difficult. It's it's um, but it's it it kind of goes with an, another element of it. I mean, you interview people. You also are trying to listen to what you know your interview subject is saying, and so it's kind of like for me. If I'm if I ask a question, I'm always kind of knowing what's what's coming next without having to like focus on what I'm looking at. You know, I might glance real quick. Okay, I know where I'm going next. So you already have that in a spot saved in your head. And so then you can kind of be able to focus on any information that's coming into the other ear while being able to then spit out the next question or pivot if that's what they're telling you to do. Right, because you want to hear what they're saying. And if they say something that changes. Yeah. Yeah. It's just bookmarking that information (laughs) in your brain, if that makes sense. All right, so you'll be with Venus on stage, Bud Walton. Do you think this will be the last time we see Danielle Musselman interview someone? Oh, I in, hope not. In Northwest Arkansas? <laughs> I will tell you, I was so honored to be asked. Um, I get asked to speak a lot, but this was something that was like next level special. Um, so I was I was really, I was just completely honored and I couldn't respond fast enough to that email that said, would you like to do this? So I hope that I do a good job that makes everyone happy and that they would consider me in the future for sure. Thank you so much for your time. and. Have a great time. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me. Danielle Musselman is a journalist and speaker. And tonight, she's hosting a conversation with Venus Williams in Bud Walton Arena on the University of Arkansas campus. Venus Williams is here as a guest of the University of Arkansas's Distinguished Lecture Series. The event is free and open to the public. After a long pandemic, are you looking for ways to get back into your community? KUAF wants to ease this burden by providing you with opportunities to connect with your community. And what better way to connect than to find ways to serve your community? KUAF is launching KUAF Reengage. The goal of KUAF Reengage is to create an army of KUAF volunteers available to serve our community as things arise. We want to be a resource to our community partners and their needs as they serve the entire KUAF listening area. So join us for KUAF Reengage April 22nd here at the studios. For more, KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. Federal officials have authorized a second COVID-19 booster vaccine for certain adults age 50 and older. The fourth COVID vaccine approved. That's a lot of shots in a short time frame. So what are risks and what are benefits? And will more immunizations bring an end to the pandemic. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. In late March, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration authorized Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna mRNA COVID-19 second booster vaccines for certain adults four to six months after their first booster shot. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has issued an okay for second Johnson & Johnson vaccine boosters as well. The news about fourth COVID shots comes just as many Arkansans are tossing masks and pandemic precautions to the wind. But Dr. Joe Thompson, president of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement in Little Rock, says the killer virus remains in circulation. The COVID-19 virus continues to mutate, and we now have a new subvariant of the Omicron uh, variant that is more than twice as infectious. 
So the reason for people to get an additional dose, additional booster on top of the vaccines they've already gotten is to raise their protection and have them be uh, protected against severe disease for this new, more infectious subvariant. Prior to the announcement, Americans who are moderately to severely immunocompromised have been eligible for a second booster dose. Recommendation is for all adults age 50 and older to consider getting a second booster. So the two primary uh, vaccines for Moderna and Pfizer, hopefully people have already gotten their first booster last fall. As we get four to six months after that, time to get another booster to keep your protection up. 66% of Americans are fully vaccinated, providing an 80% chance of immunity against COVID-19. But even a single booster shot provides as much as 94% protection against infection. Problem is that immune response, Dr. Thompson says, slowly declines over months. I think what we're saying is this is really a tricky little virus. And if your immune system is not high and providing you protection, you can get infected and get very bad conditions, hospitalization. We even continue to lose people every day across our state. Uh, For those age 50 and up, their immune system may not be able to hold on to that protection as long as younger individuals. And that's why the recommendation for older individuals 50 and up, regardless of your conditions, get a second booster. If you have had one already, get the first booster if you've just now started. As for adults who've recently caught COVID, does that provide immunity? Should they obtain a booster? For individuals who've been recently infected, either back in January, February with the Omicron or this month with the subvariant, they can wait a few months to get their second booster because their natural immunity has responded to that exposure. And what are the risks associated with COVID-19 vaccines? I think the risks are very, very low. These continue to be proven to be extremely safe vaccines. Uh, There are some conditions for uh, the myocarditis in in younger men between 19 and and mid-30s, but that is much less of a risk than getting Omicron and having the myocarditis caused by the virus. So I think these continue to prove very effective at keeping people out of the hospital and very safe for the disease that we're trying to protect people from. Myocarditis, an inflammation of the heart muscle, is a very serious but rare adverse event associated with COVID-19 mRNA vaccines, according to CDC. Right now, the highly transmissible Omicron BA2 subvariant makes up nearly 75% of circulating COVID variants in the U.S., according to CDC, yet new case counts and death rates continue to decline in the U.S., this variant, when it mutates, there are three things of importance for us to keep in mind. How infectious it is, how harmful it is, and whether it has escaped the protection that our vaccines offer. The subvariant is proving to be very, very much more infectious, but not necessarily more harmful, and our vaccines continue to show protection from severe illness. So while people are getting sick, they're not necessarily requiring as much hospitalization as the previous variants or the parent COVID-19 virus did. Like us, virus seek to survive, so tend to mutate in order to do so, seeking out fresh human and animal hosts in which to replicate and spread. The Delta variant was twice as infectious as the parent, Omicron was twice as infectious as Delta, and now this subvariant is twice as infectious as the Omicron. So It is coming after you if you don't have good protection. 
Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, said last week he expects COVID-19 cases to rise moving into summer, but that a surge is likely come fall. But with more Kansans no longer masking and gathering in large groups inside and out, it feels like the pandemic is over. The pandemic is not over as long as this virus continues to mutate and threaten us in different ways. I think we are able to relax a little bit because the level of protection from our societal perspective is higher than it has been over the last two years. But individually, if you are not optimally protected with a vaccine and boosted, you are at risk and this virus is looking for you. Dr. Joe Thompson warns our Kansans need to maintain defensive measures, hand washing, masking, and social distancing. Using logic, when we're in a large crowded area that is enclosed with poor ventilation, I would encourage people to consider masking and try to stay out of that situation if you at all can. The World Health Organization on March 11th, 2020, 25 months ago, officially declared a global COVID-19 pandemic. WHO will someday, is the hope, declare its end, transitioning to endemic, a Greek word meaning in the population, like the influenza virus, which is also effectively managed with defensive measures and vaccines. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Right now, COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations in northwest Arkansas are falling. The Northwest Arkansas Council keeps tabs on the numbers and reports last night there were just four patients in hospitals in Washington and Benton County hospitals with the virus. The Arkansas Department of Health counts five new cases in the two counties diagnosed in yesterday's report. A new veterans health care system of the Ozarks community-based outpatient clinic in Fort Smith opened yesterday. Clinic nurse manager Polly Shoemake says staff spent the past several weeks moving from very cramped quarters at Sparks Medical Plaza on Dodson Avenue into their new 34,000-square-foot state-of-the-art clinic located at 5700 Phoenix Place. So I'll use the example just now. In this new building, I was able to have well over 100 people in our new conference room, which I wouldn't do normally, but it was a way for myself and our facility planner and the administrative officer for this clinic to meet and go over all the nuances of the move and what we will be doing for the next two days. And I couldn't have facilitated that in the old building. The Fort Smith VA Community Clinic provides primary and mental health care, women's health care, social work, radiology, benefits counseling, and more. The clinic alone last year served over 8,600 veterans. And we fully believe that we will increase because we've already had veterans walk in with that currently receive their care in another portion of Oklahoma and that realize where we are now located, state of the art, we're actually closer to them, say, than Muskogee, Oklahoma, and other veterans that may have traveled to Fayetteville for, let's say, eye or ears, and I didn't fail to mention we will be offering audiology and optometry. I don't, audiology won't start with us on the 11th, but those veterans now can come closer to home. If they're in the mountain home area, if they're in Alma, they may choose to come to Fort Smith instead of driving the drive to Fayetteville. As many as 300 veterans, officials, and residents attended a ribbon-cutting dedicating the new clinic. The new facility meets Green Globe designation standards. VHSO also operates clinics in Harrison and Ozark, Branson, Joplin, and Springfield, Missouri, and Jay, Oklahoma, along with an 80-bed inpatient hospital facility on the main campus in Fayetteville. 
Hey y'all, I'm Joy McGowan. And I'm Denisha Simpson. And, and we, we are Resilient, Resilient Black, Black Women. Resilient Black Women is a new podcast that aims to demystify mental health and increase access to mental health care for all people, but especially Black women and women of color. Research shows that Black women and women of color have more barriers standing in their way of seeking mental health care, including racism and discrimination, the stigma of mental health care, limited access and lack of providers who identify within communities of color. So join us on the second and fourth Friday of the month as we break down barriers and talk about resilience, grief, our bodies, and much, much more. The Resilient Black Women podcast is available at KUAF.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. When Dr. Amber Strong was growing up in Bee Branch, Arkansas, that's an unincorporated community just south of Greasy Valley and a bit northwest of Quitman, she didn't have to contend with many lights to see the stars of the night sky. And she did investigate that sky. Later, she earned her B.A. in physics at the University of Arkansas in 2002 and her M.S. and Ph.D. in physics at Arizona State University after that. Now, as an astrophysicist for NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, She's still examining the stars. Last week, she returned to her alma mater to meet with students in the community, and she stopped by the Carver Center for Public Radio. Growing up in Bee Branch, actually, I grew up under a really dark sky, and so I feel like that sort of got me my start in astronomy. And so from the time I was a kid, I was looking up at the sky, the stars, asking questions, and I was always interested in big questions. And that eventually led to me studying how galaxies change over cosmic history. So yeah, it's it's a big topic. It's fun. There's a lot we still don't know about it. Well, yeah, I was going to ask that. It must be exciting because there's so much more that we can learn about time, distance, and it begins to funnel into, you know, why are we here or how are we here? Abs- kind of. Absolutely. And that, that goes into all the big questions that astronomy gets to. Um, yeah. And those are the big questions we ask in astronomy, like the big high-level questions. Where do we come from? How do we get here? And the are we alone? Are we alone in the universe is a big one. Um, and my research doesn't, you know, specifically get at that. You know, exoplanets, search for life is all really awesome stuff. Um, but you only have to go like one layer deeper to start getting into sort of existential questions <laughs> in astronomy. It's absolutely true. Well, can you turn off that existential question, that existential curiosity, if you are just home cooking or trying to go to bed? Or does it kind of linger there on some level at all times? <laughs> It kind of lingers a little bit. I mean, of, yes, you're, you are able to sort of, you know, do normal things. And um, I really, I love nature. I do a lot of hiking. I like to get out, you know, get outside. Of course, a lot of times when you're in those sort of, <laughs> that that the actually being in nature sort of does prompt those those sorts of big questions. But yeah, um, I mean, I think for for someone whose sort of life work is, is focused on asking big questions, it's maybe always kind of there. So... The tools that we have now compared to just 5, 15, 20 years ago to search further are, are incredible. It, it's, it, we've made some big leaps on what we can use to try to find answers to these questions. 
Absolutely. Yeah, the technology is changing really fast. Um, and every time we make a really big leap in technology, we're able to make sort of, you know, <laughs> a scaled leap in our understanding of the universe. Um, and of course, we just launched this awesome new telescope, JWST, on Christmas of this past year. And um, I, I do truly believe that this telescope is going to fundamentally change our understanding of the universe in, in ways we we can't even dream of yet. Wow. Help me out with this telescope, because it has to be launched, and I know there was this huge celebration once it got up there successfully. How far can it look? How do you access the information that comes through it? So, yeah, so we launched on Christmas Day. We are still commissioning the telescope, getting it ready to work as of as of today, as of, uh, you know, mid-April. Um, but we uh, we have a few more months of getting it, you know, up to working order. We should get the first images back this summer, probably sometime in the July time frame. Um, but, yeah, this is the biggest, most powerful telescope we've ever sent to space. And there has been a lot of celebration when we launched. It was delayed as you your listeners probably know. <laughs> yeah. uh, so big celebration when we launch, but a little bit of a tentative ce celebration because after we launched, the telescope is so big, we had to fold it up to fit in the rocket and it had to unfold in space. And this is one of the, maybe even say the most complex deployment in space NASA has ever done. And so we had this two week long period where we were essentially unfolding this four-story tennis court-sized sunshield in space. So <laughs> the big celebrations came after that uh, that deployment happened. But we're still we're still not quite ready uh, to fully celebrate. That'll come this summer when we get those those first images back. How long does it take an image to go from the telescope to Earth? Yeah, so the the actual so the 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 data travels right. via radio waves, um, and so you know it's seconds, uh, not too seconds. long. Yeah, so the telescope's really far away, um, but of course light travels very fast. Um, so yeah, um, so it doesn't take it doesn't take a, a lot of time for the the data to travel back. Sure. Now to take the data, of course, um, you know you it's sort of like opening a camera shutter uh, if you want to take a long exposure, um, you know. Uh, picture with a camera, you open the aperture for a long time. And that's kind of how we do uh, with the telescope. If if we have a, an, a, something we're looking at that's very bright, it's a short exposure. If we're doing something like, like a deep field of galaxies, you know, we'll um, sort of open the camera, so to speak, for, uh, for long periods of time and then stack the images together. So as far as taking the data, it sort of depends on what you're looking at. How far, how far away can this telescope, do we think, be able to capture images or data? So one of the primary drivers of this telescope, of building it the way we did, was to be able to capture light from the very first epoch of galaxies that were born after the Big Bang. So with Hubble, we've been able to look back in the distant past of the universe pretty far. We've been able to see some very distant galaxies, but we know that we haven't been able to see the very first galaxies that were born after the Big Bang. So we're talking about looking back in time over 13 and a half billion years. So we think the universe is about 13.8 billion years old. The first galaxies started to form, you know, several hundred million years after that. And we haven't seen those galaxies yet. And this telescope should give us the first glimpse of that part of space where the very first galaxies were born. It's hard for me to remember five years ago and <laughs> contemplate. When you're talking almost 14 billion years ago, I think for a lot of us 
who aren't astrophysicists, who don't work for NASA, who aren't engineers. It's just hard to understand that scale. I mean, it's hard even for us that okay. work. <laughs> I feel good about that. <laughs> to, to understand, the, uh, to understand uh, the scales in astronomy. Not only time, but of course distance. You know, the distances in the universe are, are un- unbelievably vast. And it's hard for, for anyone to wrap your head around. Was there a point for you as a student where you went from what you saw in those night skies in B Branch, which granted is far away, but relatively speaking, very close, to really wondering about things that are far, far away? Was there a course or a fact or something that... I think it was always just that that sort of curiosity about what was beyond what you can see with your eyes. You know, when you look at a dark night sky... It's, I mean, I think this is almost universal experience, no pun intended. Uh, but looking at a dark night sky, it just causes you to ask questions about how things work and what's out there. Um, and I guess once I, I learned or someone told me that, well, those stars you see in the night sky, that's just a tiny fraction of what's out there. Then that's when I started thinking about, well, what else is out there? You know, how many galaxies are they? How does it work? And so I think that that sort of knowledge that, oh, my gosh, what we see in the night sky is only this teeny tiny fraction of everything in the universe. That's what sort of got me on the path of wanting to study the big, the big scale stuff, you know, how galaxies change over time. After you and I are off this planet, we still won't know everything. We'll probably still not know more than we do know. Is that exciting or is that a little bit frustrating for you? It's a little bit of both. I mean, I think part of the thrill of science is knowing that you know, there's an endless supply of questions. You know, we'll never come to a complete understanding. And and in a way, that is, that's invigorating. You know, there's always more to learn. Uh, But yeah, in another way, it's kind of like thinking when I'm, I'm long gone, you know, that there's still going to be so much that I don't know. And that, you know, our ancestors, hopefully, if we can, you know, preserve this beautiful planet that we live on, uh, will, will know so much more about the universe than we do now. So it's a little, yeah, sometimes I wish I could live thousands of years <laughs> just to know what's, what's going to happen. You spoke at Comic-Con? I did. Tell me about that. Yeah, back a few years ago. That was awesome. That was a lot of fun. Um, Yeah, so they were doing this panel sort of about how science fiction informs you know, science fact and how, you know, the the early inspirations in science fiction sort of become reality in a way. And it's sort of, it's a two-way street, right? Um, You know, these these big ideas in in science fiction um, help to lead us, you know, to do real things. And then I think real, real life, you know, what we discover about the universe and what we can build in technology sort of feeds back. You ever think as this four-story tennis-sized court unfolding is happening, You think about Copernicus or Galileo and what they were able to kind of figure out with a sextant or whatever they were using and just the amazing advances that they were able to make centuries ago. Absolutely. And it's it's astounding uh, what, you know, those previous generations of astronomers were able to to discover about the universe using just these very rudimentary tools. Uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely incredible. And it would have been, I mean, thinking about living through the Copernican revolution, you know, when literally our worldview, our our worldview was shifting and changing. And of course, the scientists were persecuted for uh, for the discoveries that they made. So what a what an interesting time. Right. And there's a chance that something that we discover in the next month or decade or 50 years could be a view, a shift of views. 
And that makes me just a little uneasy, I guess. I mean, I, I want to know more, but when you start thinking about shifting how we think, whether mm-hmm. we revolve around the sun or it revolves around us, it's a little intimidating. It can be, yeah, it can be a little unsettling. Um, and, you know, we have made some some big discoveries that have changed re- fairly recently that have changed our understanding of, of the cosmos. Uh, the biggest one that comes to mind, uh, <laughs> this is still sort of, you know, astronomer speak, sure. but <laughs> the discovery of dark energy, the fact that the universe is accelerating in its expansion, which was totally unexpected. Uh, but that doesn't really, that hasn't, you know, infiltrated the public. (laughs) But I think the next big um, sort of (laughs) society-shattering discovery is going to be discovering life elsewhere. That's the holy grail sort of... I think, I mean, definitely, I think so. Um, And I think that will be, um, you know, something that is universally, um, you know, makes us think about our place in the universe. Um, When we finally do discover, um, you know, other, you know, other conscious beings. I don't think that'll happen in our lifetime. I don't know if it will ever happen. Um, Just because, again, the universe is so big. I think statistically, it's likely that there are, you know, evolved conscious beings out there somewhere. Um, But the the scale of the universe is so big, I I think there, it might be, I don't know if it's possible that we'll ever make contact. I don't know which is more challenging existentially, finding other Mm -hmm. sentient beings or as big as it is, not finding them mm-hmm. and still figuring, why then us here now? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it almost seems more It seems uh, more strange that we would be, you know, quote unquote, alone. <laughs> Finally, would you go to space if you could? Absolutely. I would get on a rocket tomorrow if I could. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I had a phase when I thought I wanted to be an astronaut and, you um, I still, you know, I still think about it. I think I'm probably past the age where I could uh, go mm. through astronaut training. <laughs> but um, I love my job as a scientist. You know, I feel like I've followed my calling and, and I, um, I have a great time. But absolutely, I'd go to space in a heartbeat. Amber Strawn is an astrophysicist with NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. And she's the associate director of the Astrophysicist Science Division and serves as deputy project scientist for James Webb Space Telescope Science Communications. She earned her B.A. in physics at the University of Arkansas and was back on campus last week. When caring for a seriously ill loved one, the journey shouldn't be taken alone. Circle of Life Hospice can help. Services are covered by Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance. No one is turned away based on an inability to pay. 750-6632 or nwacircleoflife.com for information. Walton Arts Center's 10x10 Arts Series presents the dance theater company Contra Tiempo's performance of Joy Us, Just Us, Saturday, April 16th. Taking on joy as the ultimate expression of resistance, this performance reclaims the narrative of people of color being voiceless, powerless, and victimized. waltonartscenter.org or 443-5600 for tickets. This is Ozarks Large. With me, the Carver Center for Public Radio, our militant grammarian, Catherine Shields. Welcome back. Hey, Kyle. You may know that there's long been a public discussion about whether children should learn to use the actual biological words for their private parts Mm -hmm. or whether baby talk should be tolerated. As someone who's never had a child... I'm just bothered by it all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I know people who do both. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 And I, I, it doesn't seem to me to be hard to 
get them out of it yeah. when it's when it's appropriate. But again, I didn't raise chil- little children right. either. I I adopted some. Well, we're not going to get into privates, Thank but you. here are some biological names for body parts compiled by WordGenius.com that you might not know. Mm-hmm. So let's see if you do. Kyle, why were back scratchers invented? you got to get to that place where you can't reach. Right. And do you know that that spot has a name? I did not. It's Agnestus. I think that's a perfect name for that spot. <laughs> <laughs> It's spelled, it starts out spelled like acne, uh-huh. but it, the, uh, the emphasis is acnestus. Okay, so next I have a little audience participation question. Ooh. Hold up your hand. Either one. Palm, yeah, palm facing away. Mm-hmm. Spread your fingers. Mm-hmm. Look in between your thumb and index finger, mm-hmm. and you'll notice a triangular depression at the base of your thumb. Sure, sure do. That has a name. How do you suppose folks back in the day and maybe still used that little indentation? I don't know. Something like if you're trying to screw something in or you no, rest your no, hand or something? I don't know. I don't think it's that strong. All right. I um, it, I, I'll give you a hint. It was used for something addictive and, in my opinion, very nasty. Like cocaine or something? No, not, <laughs> not that far. Okay. What, but what 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 it what was what Snuff? is there you go. <laughs> I was on the right. Yeah. You are, you are, you are. Uh it's a place for placing ground smokeless tobacco or snuff mm-hmm. in the groove to ingest it through the nose. Thus the name is the anatomical snuff box. So that name didn't come till well, stuff. Uh, who, who knows? knows? Yeah, right. Yeah, good point. That That's a very good point. <laughs> the next term might make you think I'm getting into private parts, but not really. Mm-hmm. Everyone has has them, and you can see them regularly at the beach. They are those little divots on the lower back, right above your buttocks. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Some people call them back dimples or even mm-hmm. butt dimples. Mm-hmm. It's where the sacroiliac. <laughs> That's not right, but you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. Joint meets uh, in the tailbone area, connecting your sacrum to your ilium in your pelvis. Okay. That clears things up, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. Now, but they have a much more poetic name than butt dimples. <laughs> okay. Here's a hint. Mm-hmm. They are named after the Roman goddess of beauty, known as Aphrodite in Greek mythology. Venus? Yeah. So they're the dimples. Venus de Milo's. Oh. Dimples. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Venus de Dimples. <laughs> yeah, okay. Venus dimples, dimples of Venus. Oh, Dimples of Venus. Uh-huh. Okay. And they're believed to be a mark of beauty. Mm-hmm. Okay, Kyle, here's one we've discussed before, although who knows how long ago. <laughs> Some, somehow it's stuck with me. What do you call the flat area above your nose and between your eyebrows? We have talked about this, mm-hmm. but I have no idea. Glabella. Yeah, that sounds right. Glabella is Latin for smooth, which isn't exactly accurate, as many people sport occasional hair or even sure. a unibrow. Sure. Recently, I've seen a lot of references to the 11s in the glabella. Have you seen this? No. It's the site of the earliest appearance of wrinkles on the face. Oh. It's the vertical lines that appear when you frown. In fact, I see your oh, 11s right wow. now. Wow. <laughs> Sometimes it's merely one or sometimes the Roman Roman numeral three or more, but it's called the 11s. I've seen references to it a lot lately, probably because they have some Botox or something. Sure, sure, right. 
there's actually a home diagnosis use for the glabella. If you gently pinch and lift your glabella Mm -hmm. and it remains tinted, that's a sign of dehydration. Oh, I've had so much water today. (laughs) No, you're not. not. Okay. Who knew? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, Kyle, have you ever wondered what that white semicircle at the base of your fingernails is called? I haven't, but it's a good, you know. (laughs) Good question. Yeah. Well, it's crescent-shaped. Right. And what celestial body do we see sometimes as a crescent? A moon. Moon. And what's the Latin word for moon? Luna? Yes. Ah. (laughs) So the crescent shape at the base of your nails is called a lunula. Lanula. Lanula. Okay. It's most noticeable on the thumbs, but many people's lanulae are covered by cuticles, so don't worry if you can't spot it. Hmm. Our final body part word is one I might have remembered because I know I've heard it somewhere along the line. Kyle, what's the vertical groove extending from the bottom of your nose Uh down to your upper lip? I thought the minute we started this conversation, this would come up, and I've known this before. And I forgot. <laughs> it starts with a PH. Sure. <laughs> Filthrum. <laughs> Filthrum. Filthrum. Supposedly, a wide philtrum indicates luck. But what constitutes wide? <laughs> I'll leave that for the militant biologist. <laughs> uh, the militant grammarian is Catherine Sheralds. No bone connected to you. Foot bone, your foot bone connected to you. Heel bone, your heel bone connected to you. Ankle bone, your ankle bone connected to you. Leg bone, your leg bone connected to you. Knee bone, your knee bone connected to you. Thigh bone, your thigh bone connected to you. Hip bone, your hip bone connected to you. Governor Asa Hutchinson says the state of Arkansas is on pace to have a $600 million surplus by the end of the fiscal year. And the governor says he's thinking about a tax rebate as a response to higher gas prices. Other states have entertained the idea of a rebate, but it is in the earliest stage of conversation here. Roby Rock, with our partner Talk Business and Politics this week, asked John Brummett, a political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, if a tax rebate in Arkansas is a real possibility. A state a lot like Arkansas is Kansas, for several reasons. The governor there proposed uh, $250 uh, direct payments to all tax filers, 250 per individual, 500 per married couple, $500. And that was to come from their surplus, a general revenue surplus, as is uh, Governor Hutchison's idea. And that was to cost 400 and something million dollars, which is about two thirds of our projected surplus. But I'm asking you, Roby, you got a couple of giant SUVs, I think, or maybe regular size SUVs. I do not, not anymore. Sorry. Okay. I had kids at the time. They were little. They needed car seats. But we're. In your household, uh, would 500 bucks help you buy some gasoline? Would it? Yes. 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 So, so I'm not uh, averse to the concept, but it's, uh, uh, he's, he is merely, he told me, he said, I'm just let, letting this discussion start. We would not dare do it until the end of the fiscal year, June 30, so we can actually officially tally what the surplus is. Probably going to be $600 million somewhere in that vicinity. And then we'd have to embark on serious discussions about what form it takes. It's, this will not be a gasoline tax holiday. His whole reasoning is, the backbone of our economy are people in a in a road-dependent rural state going from farm to market and from home to factory. 
that it, and, and we need to and, and if they're being uh, uh, priced out of the ability to get to their jobs uh, then that's that's a, a need for all of us to address so he's and so it would be silly then to, to on that basis to give up gasoline tax or motor fuel tax collections which would impair the uh, flow of revenue maintenance of highway maintenance funds so that's not going to be done this is to take the surplus one-time overage and rather than build buildings with it or put it in an emergency fund, send it to all of us on a co-equal per person basis. But does that address real driving needs or is that more like just a federal stimulus check on the state level? There are tons of questions about this. There are tons of questions about whether it's a right policy. Uh, I mean, you know, you need a nest egg. Even gov a government definitely needs a nest egg. Do you spend, I think it would take most of us to do, to do most of what we're going to get to do this kind of thing uh, on a substantive level. So, and the legislators, one factor I'm told is that legislators are just tired of coming down here and they, they may not want to come back. Wait, wait, wait. So, legislators are tired of coming to Little Rock? Uh, this, this may be. I didn't make. <laughs> forgive me. You're right to call me out on that. I didn't mean to say that was widespread. Okay, <laughs> but uh, I think an equal or, ex or exceeding number would be pleased to come back and collect ge uh, uh, generous uh, uh, per diems and in an election year, send some money to people. The Kansas governor stands, uh, she can't pass this thing yet. She stands accused of trying to buy votes for her reelection in her reelection year. Uh, so, so all of this is interesting, but, but it's percolating and, uh, 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 legislative leaders have been generally told by the governor, let's start taking folks' temperature on this. And uh, uh, I think it's something that the people might get interested in, that uh, they're going to get uh, a little help on gasoline. So it's kind of a big deal. And remember all those farewell speeches the senators made uh, in the last session because they weren't going to be back? I hope they don't have to make them again. John Brummett is a political columnist who writes for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and his work can be found at ArkansasOnline.com. There is more from his conversation with Roby Brock covering Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, Senator Tom Cotton, U.S. Representative Liz Cheney, and U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland at TalkBusiness.net. And tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, guns and XNA. You know, unfortunately, the number one excuse we still hear from everyone whether it be a 20-year-old student or an 80-year-old retiree, I forgot it was in my bag. You know, ignorance of the law excuses no man. A rise in the number of incorrectly packed firearms at airports, including Northwest Arkansas National Airport, on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7. You can also listen to our show by using the free KUAF app. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Fayetteville Roots presents The Steel Wheels at the Fayetteville Public Library on Sunday, April 24th at 7.30 p.m. This Roots Rock and Bluegrass band is a fan favorite from the Fayetteville Roots Festival. The Steel Wheels perform energetic music infused with personal storytelling. FayettevilleRoots.org for tickets and more information. Fayetteville Public Television offers classes in project planning and video production, plus accessibility to equipment and broadcast channels to share videos with a viewing audience, serving all residents of Washington and Benton County. Fayetteville Public Television can help people turn video ideas into reality. FAYpublic.tv for more information. 
This is Ozarks at Large. The Grammy-winning ensemble 8th Blackbird is performing tonight in the Faulkner Performing Arts Center on the University of Arkansas campus. The program includes works by guest composer Viet Quang, who's also in Fayetteville this week. It's featuring a collaboration as well with University of Arkansas students. This morning, two of the members of 8th Blackbird talked to us by Zoom. I was joined by my usual music interview collaborator, Leah Uribe. Christopher Knighton, director of bands in the UA Music Department, also joined us. We discussed creativity, the return of live performance, and the joy of playing new music. This is Myeni Da Silva, violinist for 8th Blackbird, discussing the experience of listening to unfamiliar works live. So even if you frequent concerts and and um, you are a music lover, if you're, if you're used to the familiarity of a piece and that brings you a certain kind of joy, you listen with a different set of ears than the ears that you listen to with a new new work that you've never heard. Um, and very often I find that when people don't enjoy a new work, it's it's because their ears don't aren't aren't used to having to listen to something new. And then they they come to like the piece with the second hearing of it, right? So um it's 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 a different way of listening um, that I think is is fun to exercise and important. music from 8th Blackbird's Grammy Award-winning album, Filament. The ensemble, along with composer Viet Quang, are in Fayetteville this week to meet with students, host master classes, and they're performing tonight in the Faulkner Performing Arts Center. During this morning's conversation, Leah Uribe asked cellist Ashley Bathgate about returning to the stage. And the chemistry between all of you, and it seems like you have a lot of fun making music together and traveling together and teaching together. and. Um, I, you were talking about last night um, about qualities of, uh, you know, uh, how to be a good person, how to present yourself to people, how to seem to me, how to uh, kind of lower barriers to, to access to music. And I'm interested in hearing how do you do that with your audiences? Because the music, I imagine at some point tends to be complicated. So how do you present your music so it's accessible to your audiences and people uh, that don't know anything about music uh, interested in going to those concerts? I think there are, are a few different answers to that question, maybe. I mean, one is that I, I think it's important not, you know, not just to play, but to speak to your audience and to be able to, to talk to them about the experience and what the piece is and how it was written, what the process was. Um, so we do quite a bit of that. Um, but also, yeah, there's an, an incredible vulnerability, right, in what we do. Um, and at least speaking for myself, that's that's kind of the thing, you know, like it's the one moment where I feel, and I was thinking this in, in the previous question you asked of like, there's such a happiness and a joy in performing. And it is this isolated 
hour or an hour and a half or however long it is, or the piece, if it's 10 minutes, um, where I really just feel so happy. And I feel like all the barriers and all the walls can come down. And, you know, part of it's not just playing music, right? But it's it's a translation and an expression of yourself and your personality and an expression between the players on stage. And the beauty of live performance is that there's that exchange between an ensemble and an audience. Um, and so we all get to be together collectively in this experience for however long it lasts, um, where it's untouched by the external world. Um, and it's that's a really uh, beautiful thing. Christopher Knighton, director of bands at the U of A, says the chance for students to interact with musicians and composer Viet Quang this week, invaluable. We have an opportunity to not only engage with a real living composer, uh, but terrific artists and musicians, and uh, to engage not only in music making, but to literally just hang out in the room and to hear them talk about what do you do outside of rehearsals? How do you deal with stress? How, do you, how have you grown as a musician? You know, are you from a musical family? Um, and this, the types of questions begin very surface level and very often get quite, uh, go much deeper. We'll hear more from our conversation with musicians Leo Uribe and Christopher Knighton on an upcoming edition of Ozarks at Large. The ensemble 8th Blackbird is playing tonight for free in the Faulkner Performing Arts Center on the University of Arkansas campus. More information can be found at the UA Music Department webpage. Hi, my name is Ben Bergstrom, and I'm a mandolin player. I love KUAF. They're very supportive of the local music scene, and you are listening to them, KUAF 91.3 in Fayetteville. Ben, mandolin player with Sons of Otis Malone. Sons of Otis Malone will play at the conclusion of the third annual Illinois River Cleanup that's taking place at various spots around the Illinois River this Saturday. You can learn more at irwp.org. This is 91.3 FM KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Ponca. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Catherine Sherlds, and Leah Uribe. Additional show creation today provided by Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Our membership director at KUAF is Sherry Otaviano. Our theme, the first hurrah, written and performed by Daryl Sean. We'll return tomorrow at noon and 7. And we're on your schedule with the Ozarks at Large podcast. It's a brand new Wednesday show tomorrow. Thank you, as always, for being with us. Thank you for your attention and support. Please stay safe. We'll talk again soon.